0: and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Molloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. This is a podcast to explore how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they are making as leaders. This podcast is a recording of our Future of Branding series. From the decisions facing CMOs, to the commitments they are forging, the conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections. This is how CMOs commit. Hello, and welcome to Siegel and Gale Future of Branding Roundtable. Every episode, we meet five marketing leaders to explore how they are building their brands. I'm your host, Margaret Roy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel Gale. Siegel Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design, and experience firm. In February 2020, my son played the title role in his seventh grade's production of Agamemnon huddled together with other parents, we were treated to the musings of the ancient Greek playwright, Aeschylus. He who learns must suffer, declared the chorus. Of course, days later, we were all in lockdown. Learning is change and change is difficult. Even in the most mundane of times, it requires a degree of discomfort. This pandemic has forced learning and change on all of us. Resilience, however, is the ability to bounce back in the face of turmoil and hardship. Resilience calls for flexibility, suppleness, and a strong core. Today, we will learn about resilience through the experiences of five very different brands from B2B to B2C to education, from aspirational to inspirational to essential, these brands have braved grueling challenges from economic upheaval to world wars and now a pandemic. Throughout the conversation, we would love to hear from everyone in this global audience on Twitter. Please tweet us using hashtag future of branding i will now introduce everyone in the audience and invite you to have your voice in the room to our audience on twitter please tweet us as i say using that hashtag future of branding tell us where you are joining from and in a word how do you build an enduring brand so That's the same prompt for our CMOs. As ever, I am joined by five marketing leaders. My first guest, Brian Kenny, is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at the Harvard Business School. Brian, good afternoon, Boston. How do you build an enduring brand?
1: Good afternoon, Margaret. Thank you so much for inviting me to to join this illustrious group. I'm really thrilled to be here today. Um, So my one word, it's hard to do this in one word, but my one word uh, for building an enduring brand would be restlessness.
0: Okay, so let's go from Boston to Milano and welcome Peter Jensen, Chief Brand Innovation and Marketing Officer at Moleskine. Your one word, Peter.
2: Good evening, Margaret, and thanks for having me. Uh, My one word is meaningful.
0: Okay. So now let's head back to the United States, to Connecticut, to meet Patrick Davis, Senior Vice President, Head of U.S. Laundry and Home Care for Henkel.
3: Margaret, great to be with you. Great to see you again. Uh, Quite a challenge to boil it down to one word, but the one word I will say is consistency.
0: Okay, so let's head back across the pond again, where I see Paul Fletcher, who heads Marketing and Communication at Coot's.
4: Yeah, thanks very much, Margaret. Um, Yeah, again, it's a difficult question to answer in one, one word, but if I had to, it would be indispensable.
0: Okay, so from indispensable in London, let's go to Minnesota to meet Karen Kozak, Vice President of Global Brand at Cargill. A very good morning, Karen.
5: Hello, good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. I agree uh, with every single word uh, that my fellow panelists have uh, put forward. Uh, The word I would choose uh, for enduring brand would be authentic.
0: I love that we have different words. That gives us great fodder for this conversation. So let's begin at the top of the order and explore the topic deeply. Brian, you'll get us started. The Harvard Business School, an iconic brand, established in 1908 to educate business leaders with the mission of educate leaders who make a difference in the world. Indeed, the folks at Harvard Business School were the first to establish the MBA program. So tell us why you chose the word you did and uh, what does the Harvard Business School brand
1: stand for it was so it's so true that all of those words apply and as I heard each one I thought why didn't I think of that word going first I guess is both a pro and a con there Um, you know I chose restlessness because I think one of the challenges that any heritage brand has and I would define a heritage brand as a brand that benefits from its history, that actively uses its history as part of its positioning, uh, present-day positioning. Um, you know, Harvard Business School, uh, as you pointed out, was the first in this category—the first school to offer a Master of Business Administration. Um, you know, being first has its own set of, I think, challenges and obligations, frankly. Uh, and and we've always looked at ourselves as needing to continue to stay in front and to sort of chart the course For other business schools, you know, if you want to be a leader in the category, then you have to demonstrate leadership and you can't lead if you are sort of resting on your laurels. So I chose restlessness because I really feel like any brand that sits back and sort of rests on its own laurels is going to inevitably fall behind. If you're not continually reinventing yourself and finding new ways to be relevant, another great R word, new ways to be relevant to your audience, there's no way to sustain uh, that leadership advantage.
0: So let's explore that further, Brian. You know, the Harvard Business School, it's an iconic brand. It's an interesting brand, because on some level, there may be folks who would consider it perhaps elitist. And in this current era of authenticity, how do you thread that needle?
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I like to remind folks that we are elite, but we're not elitist. And there's nothing wrong with being elite. I think people strive, you know, brands strive to be considered elite brands in a lot of categories. Uh, So we don't shy away from the fact that Harvard Business School is a special place, and it's a difficult place to gain admission to, and there's a reason for that. We want to admit the students who we think are most qualified to succeed, who will have a big impact in the world. You've stated our mission, which is to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. Well, you really have to find very special people to live up to that mission. So I feel like we don't shy away from that notion. Yeah. But I also feel like we need to help people understand what it means to be elite and not elitist. And we try to do that. Actually, social media has been such a a benefit to us because it allows us to surface the authentic voices of our students and our faculty to the surface. So people can engage with them directly. For a long time, Mystique was a big part of the Harvard Business School brand. And that doesn't work anymore in this day and age of transparency. So we have to tear down sort of the opaqueness and bring the real voices to the surface. And once you do that, People realize right away that these students are ambitious and they're talented, but they're not self-centered. They're not in this for themselves. They wanna they wanna be successful. And to them, that means making a contribution to the world and giving back in meaningful ways.
0: So let's talk about your response to COVID. I know on a very visceral level that part of the motivation for going to the Harvard Business School is that pedagogy of the case method. And another motivator is the networking, immersed with your fellow students. So how have you responded to the crisis in the context of delivering that education experience?
1: Yeah, that that obviously was a huge challenge over the past year, but I I think the entrepreneurial spirit at the school really came to the surface. You know, initially we moved everybody online, like every institution had to. We had to send our students home and and revert to online learning exclusively. But over the summer, we worked really hard to find a way to still deliver that brand experience of the networking, and the, you know, being together as a school. So we invited our students back to campus. We have 1,500 students on campus right now, and they're learning through a combination we call it a hybrid approach but they can be in their in their dorm room or in a private space doing this online or they can be in the classroom. We're actually rotating students in the classroom in small enough numbers so that we make sure that we're following all the health and safety guidelines. But the experience there becomes very much what you might remember, Margaret, from your days at Harvard Business School. Uh, And we've also, you know, we were trying to find ways to allow students to have safe gatherings on campus and trying to recognize that it can't be the same as it always is. And students understand that. And they've been so thoughtful about it. I think they recognize the importance of this moment. They want to make sure that that they have the best experience that they can and that means following all the guidelines and following all the the rules that we have to put in place to make it safe.
0: What are you seeing in terms of habits, be it of the students or the 70,000 plus alumni of the school that have changed in COVID and do you anticipate any of those behaviors enduring?
1: Yes, for sure. I think the, the biggest change that we have seen, and I would extend this beyond just the HBS community to the broader business community, people who are interested in, in the kind of uh, research that our faculty do, um, we've seen um, much greater consumption of the content that we're putting out there. It was very evident in the early days when people were first find themselves at home and they're trying to figure out you know, how to how to spend whatever idle time they might've had. Uh, so we saw that, that content consumption went up uh, and engagement with the content went up people responding and reacting at much greater numbers than they had before. That continues to be the theme that we're seeing, and it's caused us to have to sit back and sort of think about how do we adjust to that? Are we making sure that The content that we're putting out there is as relevant as it can be. We're doing a lot of testing, A-B testing of not just the content, but the design of of the content that we're putting out there. I think that this notion of um, content, consumption of content in greater numbers is going to continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. And I think that consumers at this point have sort of made their choices about where they wanna find content. We hope that a lot of them have decided that Harvard Business Review and Harvard Business School uh, has a lot of the business content that they think is highly valuable. So um, so we hope that's a continuing trend.
0: And I would encourage everyone to check out Cold Call, a podcast that Brian hosts. I think you had five year anniversary recently. Just a wonderful mechanism to make the school, as you say, accessible, transparent, and indeed very human to our listeners. So uh, that's a plug for unsolicited plug for Brian's <laughs> podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. We'll come Thank back. to Momentarily, as I say next, we're going to go to Peter Jensen, leads brand and innovation at Moleskine. So Moleskine is, as a brand, has been around a couple of decades. But of course, you're the heir and successor of that legendary notebook used by artists and thinkers like Van Gogh and Picasso. So a fascinating place in your brand history. Also, mm. I, I think we all. Um, have a deep appreciation for this duality of the notebook and digital in, in these times. So, so so, what does your brand stand for? And tell us about your one word around meaning.
2: Hmm. So I think our, our, our brand, uh, uh, as, as you're alluding to, we're obviously mostly known for the notebooks that uh, many of you probably uh, use, uh, or maybe even right now, like myself. Um, but what's really important is not necessarily the, the notebook itself, it's what the notebook uh, is there to do. And by, by meaningfulness, I, I'm actually hinting at, at two, two words or two dimensions. One is the, that the object itself carries a meaning that comes from the legacy and the heritage that you described uh, before. The other more important, I think, part of meaningfulness is what the object, but consequently, what the user does with that object means to the user. So in other words, we, we think that our heritage really is, a, is empowering, let's say, human creative potential. But right. we try to support uh, that by delivering a platform that you you're proud of, you're, you're, you like, that means something to you where you think that you are, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, the shoulders of Picasso, the, the, the shoulders of Van Gogh uh, and, and really uh, through this we will seek some sort of a creative fulfillment. And, and if you think about sort of recent studies uh, about how creative fulfillment actually how important it is to even the, the human psyche and ultimately health, uh, you, you, would, you would eventually say that we're in the, in the happiness business. So when, when, I, when I say that what is meaningful, it's, it's ultimately that, it, that it's happiness. I think one thing that's important to, to understand, you know, it, was, it was sparked with what, by what Brian said about elite versus elitist. We talk about our brand uh, as being inclusive and not exclusive. Uh, And maybe it's because we're headquartered in Milan that the the idea of exclusivity or fashion or luxury is very close to us. Prada is uh, literally 200 meters up the road from me right now. But what we think about is the inclusiveness, So, i.e. what I bestow upon the brand or the object or the thing that I do with the notebook is the inclusive part and that is why it's valuable. So it's it's the, it's the meaning that bestows value, not the object itself.
0: Now, some of our listeners may be surprised mm-hmm. that a company with such beauty in the physicality of that analog technology, mm-hmm. the notebook, is blazing trails in digital. I believe you won the 2019 Apple Design Award for excellence for the Flow app. And you're doing yes. a number of other parallel initiatives around oh. screens. So, yes. so talk to us about how you are essentially creating that integration across yes. the paper and digital. Yeah,
2: um, I think when uh, going back just uh, for a second, when I joined the company in, in, about 10 years ago, the notion was that digital was going to kill paper. And we basically said, no, digital is a huge opportunity for paper. And, and, and that's sort of a, a, in a microcosm, but if you step back to the purpose of the company, which is empowering human creativity, culture and knowledge, it doesn't matter where your creativity happens. So ultimately you should consider creativity to be platform agnostic, which means our role uh, is really that of an architect or to try to connect these domains to each other in a meaningful way. And it's been a journey for us as a brand, because of course we came from a very paper-based legacy, started adding digital services, and now with Flow won an award for a pure digital uh, product. Uh, One that we think is completely in line with the mission, Uh, is not at conflict uh, with paper at all. And and particularly as we look to, you know, uh, younger generation millennials and, and generation C, what we're experiencing is an is in even increased need to be able to balance those two uh, platforms, if you like, with each other and give uh, almost the user uh, access to the Moleskine idea and the Moleskine world through the door that they wish to enter. So we started with the idea of going from analog to digital now we have to be able to actually support both these things now i think a an interesting piece when you talk about uh, millennials generation c is that what COVID certainly has has brought about is a a slew an onslaught of personal creativity we see that in our sales we see that in in the apps business as well where uh, even younger generations are are sharing their creations by record number, so we uh, last time I checked, we have 5.3 million entries in TikTok that tag a uh, moleskin or journal. So, uh, in a generation that you would normally think maybe predominantly digital, they take the 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 paper based creativity and share it with uh, their, their their peers uh, or their, their generation, if you like, on, on TikTok.
0: It's also interesting to see a number of the digital companies embracing the digital pens and trying Mm -hmm. to improve the drag on their screens to allow for that. And when when I thought about that first, I was thinking, my goodness, is that a threat to moleskin? But then on reflection, perhaps not because it's validating handwriting. Exactly. What are you seeing in regards to what's your reaction?
2: No, exactly. I've I've never seen the screen in itself as as the threat. I've I've always considered the threat uh, would be the disappearance of, of handwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and as a consequence, you know, when when Apple launched the pencil, I received a lot of concerned calls from the board members of this company, and I said, "You should be happy. Yes. This is a, it's a day of, of celebration because it means that the that that now application developers uh, Microsoft have, have done that, with the Duo now as well, where the pen or the stylus starts becoming the primary uh, interface to your computing world. And that means in, in many ways, you start uh, developing co- uh, you know, uh, cognitive skills in the same way with the computer interfaces that you do with paper. That, let's say this, it's quite well documented that let's say the asymmetrical actions of writing by hand has a positive effect on your cognitive performance so trying to actually merge these things is is something that i think is super interesting and in that we as a brand actually want to embrace it's it's not a threat it's it's for us it's it's actually a, a huge favor <laughs> if you like we're not leading the we're not championing handwriting alone let's put it that way
0: Excellent. Well, as someone who writes uh, personalized handwritten notes, I certainly conspire with your vision. And I encourage everyone to download the Flow app. It's truly a wonderful, very simple what very beautiful experience.
2: If, if I may plug, tomorrow uh, version two will launch and you will be able to collaborate with others. So that's there's a huge launch tomorrow. Sorry. That, so, was
0: <laughs> that that's wonderful. We're, we're in marketing, so we're all absolutely fine yeah, clubs. Yeah. And I'm happy to say brought to you first here on mm. Seaton and Future yeah. of <laughs> okay well thanks for that peter let's head over now to patrick davis patrick svp head of u.s laundry and home care at henkel a general management and a chief marketing role very interesting advantage point um henkel detergents started in dusseldorf germany 1876 and today this statistic really grabbed my attention. Henkel sells detergents for around 25 billion wash loads per year. So that gives you context to impact, Patrick. So Patrick, you talked about consistency as your word. Henkel's an interesting one because you have so many brands. I grew up with Persil. In Ireland and okay. the UK, we have died, yes. snuggle. Tell us what. How do you think about brand, and how do you think okay. of building enduring brands?
3: Yeah, and um, you know, you 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 forced us to choose one word. Um, I went with consistency, but it could have easily also been differentiation. Uh, I think the two of them come together. At Hinkle, we are not a branded house. We're more of a a house of brands and even in the laundry category, we actually have four laundry brands. So, a big part of my job and my team's job is defining the unique purpose for each one of those brands, how we differentiate them, and very consistently communicate that to our retailers and our consumers. So it's the repetition that keeps it top of mind for consumers and separates it in the mind of of consumers.
0: Now, Patrick, no doubt during COVID, you likely experienced a spike in demand mm. in the beginning as more people were home, more people doing sure. I'm also very mindful of the fact that 90% of US people have one of your products at home. So that's tremendous reach. It also gives you tremendous access to the community. So whether it's COVID or Black Lives Matter or so many of the crises that indeed, we're all grappling with right now, I'd love to get your perspective on how Henkel is responding to the crisis. And indeed, personally, your your perspective, I know you have a unique conscience on these issues.
3: Yeah, sure. And you know, uh we've um I've I've thought about it and we've talked about it uh a lot and Really, right now we're we're facing two pandemics. You know, we're we're facing the pandemic of COVID, but we're also facing a much needed reckoning with racial justice in in the U.S. Um, you know, as far as the pandemic, I think uh, first things first, and I'll put on my general manager hat because the first thing we wanted to ensure is our products are are deemed essential. So health and safety became the number one priority for us. Our factories have kept going and are fully producing throughout the pandemic. So getting people the PPE they needed, the protocols in place, so that we keep our operations going is priority one. The second thing is, you rightly point out, um, we have had to reckon with a a huge spike in demand. And We make not only laundry detergent, but actually cleaning products as well. Uh, Just in detergents, we saw demand speak peaked by 50% or uh, 50% in March and April versus the usual 2 to 3% per year. So we're still in a lot of ways catching up and recalibrating with the changing consumer taste because the consumer... Is actually demanding more from us right now. So those are things on on the side of the pandemic. I would also include in there uh, giving donations and and free products so that people can still clean their clothes, clean their surfaces, and stay safe. As it pertains to uh, to racial justice, you know, I I think we are. Using our clout and, and our marketing spend, we spend tens of millions of dollars to um, to place our marketing and, and our voice um, in places that reflect our values. So we, uh, a few months back, were a part of the Stop Hate for Profit movement, where we actually paused our social media presence on platforms like Facebook, and Instagram for a couple of months until we became more comfortable with, number one, where our messages were and was it alongside hate speech and what other precautions were being put in place on a platform that we supported.
0: Fascinating. And I suppose you also have an interesting vantage point on changes in consumer demand so what are you seeing in terms of e-commerce and or enthusiasm for the planet are those priorities at this
3: time no no great question you know i i i liken it to um a couple of different kinds of changes we're seeing I see. Uh, on one hand, we see uh, things that were already uh, increasing, but they've accelerated because of COVID. So accelerations, and then I think COVID has brought on some shifts. Now, for us, an acceleration would be something like e-commerce. E-commerce was already growing double digits for us every year, but right now it's growing more than two hundred percent year. To date. And we have had to retool to keep up because we use different bottles for e commerce, which are more concentrated formulas and caps and tops that are, are uh, constructed to be uh, breakage and shatter resistant. When we think of shifts, uh, two come to mind. One that, that you've pointed out, the, the changing consumer taste. So, you know, I think consumers are much more oriented to performance oriented products, uh, things with antibacterial hygiene. Uh, and as you've also pointed out, eco formulas, you know, being at home and seeing what lessening our footprint on the planet has done uh, to air quality, water quality around the globe, I think has awakened many people. So many of our eco skews are, are doing very well. The other one I would just uh, highlight is the the shift in media consumption. And, mm-hmm. you know, there we see the move from linear TV to streaming and, and digital. And, you know, um, I I think I read a stat that uh, there are 18 new streaming services that have launched in just the last 12 months. You know, for us, it's made us rethink where we're spending and where we support things like search or uh, digital, because those are the type of consumer activities that that consumers are looking for goods online and with third party sellers. So we want to support the search in those platforms.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Patrick. Let's head now to a very different world. Let's greet again Paul Fletcher, head of marketing at Coops, a private bank in the United Kingdom. Uh, the leading choice in the region for wealthy individuals and families. Paul, you may have the distinction of the oldest company on the panel. I believe you were founded in 1692.
4: So so tell us about it. 128 years ago, yeah.
0: Indeed, indeed. So so tell us about the brand, and you are you're certainly an iconic brand in the context of the United Kingdom, perhaps lesser known to all of our audience. Tell us about your brand and, indeed, um, Indispensable
4: and your aspirations for it. Okay, so, yeah, that, that's right. So we were founded in 1692. Um, we've lived in the same location all that time, which is the Strand uh, in London, um, we're, we've, we've, got quite famous clients. We don't confirm or deny who our clients are, but they tend to be quite famous. Um, and we're probably seen as probably one of the founders of private banking as it is known today. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so, it, it, you know, like a lot of the, the, the guys who have already talked, uh, so far, it is very much around, okay, how do you distill The best of the past but then embrace everything you can from the new and the the word indispensability really comes from a quote from thomas coots which um he talked about being in in, in, knowing your clients so well you become indispensable to them and i think that resonates just as well in a digital world as it does um in thomas coots's day um, you know, the, the, the feeling that you'll have your own banker and that your banker will be able to know everything about you to be able to provide you with the best advice. Um, but in reality, that you won't necessarily, not all of our clients will have their own banker. So what we've got to do is make sure that we know everything about our clients to be able to advise them and guide them on their, uh, on their life for them and, and, their, and also their family um we've got quite an eclectic uh client base i i, I sort of j- jokingly call them some tattoos to tiaras and everything in between it's um you know a real sort of broad church of people um they each have their own space specific needs and uh, you know we are very innovative in the ways in which we can help them um depending on their background depending on their income profile etc but i also think that it, and we 're probably quite unique in the way that we 're a luxury brand or a financial services brand, but we 're a luxury brand, but but in the same way that Patrick and the Henkel team are we 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 have to be a performance brand as well you know we have to um, perform when it matters most, um, and so that sense of indispensability is really baked into the fact that we do the very high, you know hygiene type services that people need, which are the general banking services. But then thinking about it more deeply than that, and you know, starting to you know add different layers to the brand, um, in particular around sustainability, um, the work we do with climate, how we utilise our convening power to bring people together to share ideas, um, what we do in digital, um, to make sure that we're future-facing because we've got a very dis- discerning audience, um, and and then also surprise and delight. You know what can we do that that, that really uh, you know touches our clients and, and and makes them feel positive about it. So, you know, at the last count, about 65% of our clients view that view us as indispensable to them. We've got more work to do on the other 35%, um, but we're we're working our way through them. Um, and really, I think COVID has just been a really interesting time because it's where it's it's, it's shown. Um, this has been the time when a lot of financial services companies have had to step up, um, and it's been a challenging time for both the financial service companies and, and the clients themselves.
0: Yes, indeed. And I know David Attenborough, no less, gave you accolades for your work around the environment. Um, yeah. You know, it's such an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Henkel, quite literally, doing hygiene and um, and you with it, with it there was a spurious connection there very spurious Paul, between your more
4: about the performance and the hygiene moments
0: yeah um, quite spurious. yeah i'm i'm not sure i'm buying it but i appreciate the creativity um but having said that uh, talk to us ever so briefly about perhaps the how you keep that entrepreneurial spirit in a brand that is so established and so venerable, how do you keep it entrepreneurial um, today?
4: Yeah, well, it helps that, the, that we've got an Aussie CEO who's entrepreneurial himself. and so you know if we look back a few years uh, our own NPS, you know it's it's essentially um, risen by about 40 points um, in the last three or four years. So your next promoter you know, score. Correct. Yeah. So, so um, it is. Uh, you know, in that a lot of that comes down to uh, the attitude that we have within the organisation and being receptive to clients, our contact strategy, and the way that we interact with clients. So, um, so, so that's fundamentally very key, and also reflecting our, our client base. So. Um, we, we look after around 20,000 of the UK's entrepreneurs we've probably got the biggest entrepreneur uh, group uh, group of clients of any private bank in the UK um, and and essentially they, they, they behave in a certain typical way which is you know a relentless spirit and and you know always pushing to to grow etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and and you know being a customer centric company we've obviously got to be responsive to that so um so these are all the things that i think we we've done a, as an organization and then and then lastly i think um just recognizing and you know, we talked about being indispensable to our clients i think you know our parent brand which is natwest they um they and we have a have a uh, have done quite a lot of work about our own corporate purpose and, and really you know how do we actually champion potential and so the next stage for us as an organization is how do we take what we offer um, very affluent uh, clients and then make that available in some way to customers of natwest um so helping uh, those people who probably can't afford or have access to financial planning advice um essentially um get that advice and be able to plan both in terms of the, as they're accumulating wealth but also in retirement as they're decumulating which um which is quite an exciting development for us as a business
0: Fantastic. We'll look forward to tracking that one. And there might be a more plausible connection with those alums of the Harvard Business School and Coos. I'm going to speculate there, Brian, there might be a little overlap there. Not sure the degree to which they're doing their laundry, but hoping they're being creative. Wonderful. Thank, thank you for that. So now let's see if we can connect with Karen. Karen Kozak, VP of brand at Cargill. So Karen, we know, we know Cargill, a fascinating company, over 150 years old, um, more than $100 billion in revenue, and an important mission around nourishing the world. So primarily B2B, but very expansive remit also T- tell us about your brand and uh, what you're seeing in terms of covid
5: so uh yeah we we absolutely have this critical mission of uh, nourishing the world as you said um, our brand and the reason i chose kind of authentic from my word it's all about enabling our customer success and our customers are the folks who are working with us on on nourishing the world and feeding people feeding animals etc um, and you know one of the biggest challenges that we've had with COVID is, um, you know, those needs as you've seen can change overnight, right? Um, In terms of what is it our customers need, what are our consumers, um, you know, demanding and driving that need. So the biggest challenge with COVID has been the demand volatility and its impact on the global food supply chain. Um, So this really has been an example of needing to be resilient. Uh, needing to be authentic and true to our purpose of nourishing the word world and our values of how we bring that together. Um, and we had to work with our customers so that we could shift the food supply chain um from restaurants to retail in the early days, as you saw, when shelves were becoming depleted and people were kind of pantry stocking. Um, and then another uh, shift that we we really wanted to make sure um Um, um, was carried through was a lot of families and children are, in particular, get their main meal from schools. So when schools closed, uh, that impacted a whole nother part uh, of the food supply chain. So we needed to make sure that food shelves and other sources um, of where people could get their food uh, were available to them in these very dynamic and changing times so that people could be remain being nourished and fed.
0: Karen, against that backdrop of supply chain and operations in 70 countries, 150,000 employees, talk to us about marketing and the brand and what your team
5: uh, did during this period and continues to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think one of the key things from a from a marketing standpoint is um, focusing, continuing to focus on our customers. Right, being very much uh, customer centric um, as an organization that is that is absolutely our focus. Um, and it's not just assuming you know what what that need is, particularly as it's evolving and changing, um, as it can happen overnight. Right, uh, in the case of COVID. But um, how are we making sure that you know we continue to um, um, focus our attention and our um, our abilities and our capabilities, if you will, on meeting our customers' needs. We have to be nimble. We have to evolve, right, as um, consumers who are certainly an influence, uh, you know, inf- key influencer to our customers and driving that demand across the, the food supply chain, you know, as their needs are evolving and changing, we need to make sure that we are adapting. Um, a lot of what we're focusing on um, from a marketing standpoint is, um, Uh, customer insights, right? How are we using data um, and technology and digitalization better and smarter? We're probably sitting on a mountain of information and we can't take all of our time trying to figure out what we've got. We really need to be focusing and shifting that time on understanding those insights, understanding what that translates into um, meeting that need. um, What problem is there to be solved and how are we making sure that we're creating value for our customers and um, basically everyone else that's impacted across the, uh, the global food supply chain.
0: Well, thank you, and thank you for that, Karen, and everything you're doing in terms of nourishing and providing food security for so many that need it. So let's go back to the top of the order again, starting with Brian. I'm going to ask pretty much the same question to all of the panelists. A recurring theme here seems to be, to be enduring means to be relevant. So my question, starting with you, Brian, as a marketing leader, what has COVID taught you about relevance?
1: So, you know, I think it's interesting if you look at, um, you know, a brand like Harvard Business School, um, part of the push and pull of, of being a heritage brand is that we've been around for a long time and, you know, Harvard University has been around several hundred years longer than Harvard Business School. So we have this sort of aura of having been around for a long time, which can also in some places translate to being old and stodgy uh, and not being relevant. Right? And you know, the, the, the push and pull there is to make sure that our heritage means something, but it doesn't mean that we're stuck in the past. And so I think one of the things that we learned from COVID was that we were able to flex muscles that we didn't know we had. We always talk about relevance. And you know, my team spends a lot of time making sure that the social media that we're doing, the content that we're featuring is relevant in, in a current context. So they're scanning headlines and looking for news hooks and other things that we can peg our content to. And when COVID came around, this is a brand new phenomenon. Nobody's ever dealt with anything like this. There's no pre-existing content that maps to a global pandemic from a business perspective. Um, but We are fortunate to be in a place where 230 plus faculty are constantly watching what's going on in the world and reacting to it. And they very quickly jumped on COVID from a business angle and began to think about it and write about it and and form opinions about it. And our task at that point was to figure out ways to package that thought leadership so that it could be easily consumed um, by people who were actively looking for information. I'll give you a concrete example of one of the ways that we did that was to launch a Zoom series. I had never used Zoom before COVID hit. You know, So one of the first um, opportunities I had to use it was with a faculty member named Seydal Neely. Seydal uh, is somebody who studies organizations, that's because she's organizational behavior faculty, but she um, has developed a deep expertise in remote working. In fact, she's about to launch a book on the topic of the remote workforce coming out in March. And she reached out and she said, you know, I had a conversation with uh, the the editor of Harvard Business Review about doing an article on this. And he thought I should reach out to you and see if there's other ways that you might be interested in using it. And I said, why don't we do a Zoom call? Let's just invite people to do a Zoom call where I talk to you about remote working. That Zoom call that we posted garnered over 30,000 views at this point. So here's a brand new relevant channel that we can use to reach people uh, quickly and, and timely so that they can consume content that's gonna matter to them. We did a whole series of those conversations. I started doing them every week. We tailed off a little bit over the summer because I think People's um, appetite for that content seems to, you know, subside a little bit. And so we're just trying to monitor what's happening, um, you know, with with the way people are consuming content and adjust to that. I think being flexible and being able to build that flexibility into your content structure is critically important uh, to being relevant.
0: And Brian, ever so briefly, what is your personal commitment? to making sure the Harvard Business School brand is relevant for the decades to come?
1: You know, I've been talking about, I've been there for over 12 years, um, you know, which I think in a CMO life is, you know, uh, is remarkable to some extent. Uh, You know, part of it is that the brand is constantly renewing itself. It's a place where you, all of a sudden you look up and five years have gone by and you say, geez, where did those five years go? I think that speaks to the nature of the place, the high energy, um, the, the diversity of challenges that we get to work with there as a marketing person. You know, there's no shortage of great thought leadership to showcase so i guess my personal commitment to making the brand continue to stay relevant is to challenge my team every day to make sure that um The stories that we're telling about the school are stories that will ring true that have great authenticity and that animate the mission of the school and why what we do is relevant in the world. And we have great examples of alumni and things that they are doing in the world and the research that our faculty does and connecting those to the day to day experiences of of business leaders is the magic. That's what we have to continue to find ways to do
0: great. Well, thank you for continuing to make magic Brian. Uh, let's head over now again to Peter Jensen at Moleskin, the epicenter of creativity there in Milano. Um, so, same question. What have you learned in COVID about staying relevant?
2: I think what we have uh, learned is that the relevance as such has become a little more. Uh, Granular than we than we thought in the beginning. We we used to think about our our offerings and the narratives and the stories that we talk about in terms of either fulfilling creativity or even with the digital products that you mentioned, delivering on productivity. And clearly, as as COVID struck, the the initially we changed our our. Editorial and our, our our outreach strategy and our contact strategies to reflect on this idea of how could you become you remain productive remote working all of these things what are the tools that you could use what are the tips and tricks and and how do do does our portfolio support that as we got a little bit further into the mm-hmm. the, the crisis though I think what what we experienced all of us because. Uh, you know, we're headquartered in, in Milan. Our products are made in China and our biggest market is in the US. So you get the, 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 the terrible process we've been through, but as we all experienced the entire company experiences melting together of your work life and your private life, your productivity time and your reflective or your creative time started to sort of blend into one as you were sitting at home. So we then initially then. It's tested the water of saying can we actually have a a mindfulness track and we have a creativity track that needs to run in parallel with the productivity and our original creativity track in order to basically enable people to make room for themselves so increasingly we start talking about you know also in our applications we start talking about how can you how can you make time for yourself how do you make sure That your work life doesn't inhabit your entire life, so to speak. So it's become really, if you like, micro relevant in the the sense that we've been following what we hear from consumers, what we experience ourselves, and try to change our content strategy uh, to to reflect that uh, understanding. And I think that's where meaningfulness also means that we convey To the consumer that we understand the situation that they're in because only if you do that can i think you call yourself consumer-centric
0: and your personal commitment to maintaining that relevance for the my uh, the moleskin brand
2: Um, my personal commitment is is the question of being agnostic i i want to be a brand that supports that human development no matter if it's on paper or if it's on screen um, and whether it's an introspective experience that i do for myself or if something that i do to share with others that is that is up to you but i will support that journey and that joy and ultimately that happiness uh, as long as i'm here
0: interesting and also the notion that creativity and productivity are not at odds No. They're- Very interesting. Well, thank you for that. So, Patrick, you shared many of your learnings already. Anything you would add in terms of COVID and what has taught you about relevance and being a relevant
3: brand? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, two, two thoughts come to mind and I think they're pretty similar to some of the ones that have already been shared, but maybe a a bit of a different take. Uh, One is the need to speak to the moment uh, in as real time as you can, if if you're going to be relevant. I remember there was a, a video when the pandemic began, and it was kind of a mashup of all the uh, uh, spots that people were doing about COVID. And it always kind of started with uh, some slow violin or string music, an empty street, and you know maybe an empty counter. Uh, one thing we we did with our Snuggle brand is we pivoted and um, actually tried to put out communication that depicted what consumers were going through. And we actually, uh, one of our agencies, TBWA, came up with a great idea. Um, The creative director shot it over the weekend with his wife and kids' talent. But it was a spot all around a mom doing a Zoom call, you know, from her laundry room and just chaos ensuing in the background. And it was, you know, a little bit of what we all are going through and, you know, any moment now a small child is is like to burst into my office and run through, but it, it, it became relatable, it became relevant and, you know, we have done similar with smaller campaigns using influencers or social media, but really kind of more speaking to uh, what consumers are going through. And the other one just really quickly, uh, the pandemic has taught me uh, about the the importance of trust with consumers. And, you know, I, I take this from, you know, if you look at the products that flew off the shelves first when the pandemic began, uh, they weren't always the brands that that had been the most popular, but they were the brands that people fell back to, that people trusted, that they knew and knew they could depend on. So there's been probably a, a lot less promiscuity in in terms of trying new brands and maybe a flight to the known to the certain, to the comfortable.
0: And with that as an analysis, what's your personal commitment to keeping the Henkel or indeed any of the brands in that house relevant for decades yeah. to come?
3: Yeah, I, I think... It's a journey that we were on before COVID, but, but certainly it, it has amplified it. And it's to define a, a purpose beyond just a functional benefit for each of our brands. And, you know, I, I think as we look at purpose, it really comes down to finding that convergence of, you know, what does your brand care about? What are you good at? And what does the world need? And how do you find that convergence of the three that makes your brand to your first point even more relevant within the world? So for me, that's, uh, that's Personally, what I want to do more, or from a Hinkle standpoint, personally, um, you know, I, I think the 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 recent conversations around racial justice have just um, made me a little bit more. Outspoken about the need for diversity and inclusion within all of our spaces and, you know, we know that within companies uh, being more diverse as a workforce uh, makes us more productive. So uh, that's that's more on on my, my personal commitment as a leader.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And as I said earlier, you have a particular conscience in that area that is both authentic and inspiring. And we look forward to supporting you on that journey. So let's head back over now to Paul. So as we talked about Paul, such a venerable brand, such an enduring brand. What has COVID taught you about relevance?
4: Well, i think probably the most important thing that happened during covid was was our people and how our people reacted to that and you know when you've got people who are engaged in the brand um and they're committed to delivering the type of experience that all the service levels that we that our clients demand um in a very difficult circumstances so we had um, contingency planning for if something happened to our offices to go somewhere else and deliver that. What we didn't have is a, a contingency plan for all offices not being available. So, you know, we have a 24-7 telephony service. You can imagine how busy that was because we're a commercial bank as well as a as well as well a wealth management business um, and people needed support there and then. So, we had to move all of our um, frontline staff to work from home. Um, all of our call centre people to work from home and and that was challenging and you had to call upon partners, you had to um, commercial partners such as our concierge service, the people themselves to completely change the way in which they worked um, and, and it really to be able to deliver that in a customer centric or people business you have to have people that really buy into the brand and so so i think for me that is the most important part is that you know as a heritage and luxury brand that you've got people in there that really are passionate about uh, maintaining that
0: and your personal commitment to maintaining that relevance paul
4: i think just keep pushing so so for us the things that have made us very successful and my favorite things about the organization is where we've, we've done things that are different. So, you know, we were the first, um, bank to have, um, to, to have computer-based banking. We were the first bank to have an app. We were, um, in the 1970s, we put, we saw the roof garden and a glass ceiling and a big atrium, you know, all these sorts of things are the things that, that push us forward. And I think this is a challenge that heritage brands have is that people always think about the, the brand as something, um, that was somehow better previously. And for us, it's, it's really just getting people to be much more excited about the future than yeah, nostalgic about the past.
0: That's a gorgeous nexus of heritage and being first. We applaud you for that. Um, so let me see, is Karen still on? Karen, we continue to lose your video, but are you available
5: via audio? I, I think I'm still here audio. Can you hear me okay, Margaret?
0: We, we can, and delighted Hear you, so Karen. Um, you, you've heard from the other panelists. Same question. Yep. What have you learned about relevance during COVID?
5: Yeah, I think it's about striking the right balance of being flexible, so you can meet some changing, you know, the, the changing needs um, of your customers and stakeholders, um, while also identifying the shared values which are enduring and remain true for for you and for them. Um, you know. Having a clear purpose and actionable values, I think, is really important. Um, Not just statements on a wall, but things that you actually live. Um, We put the priority of, um, you know, during this time and always on the health and safety of our employees. Um, Safety has been a priority at Cargill for many, many years uh so it's not something we just suddenly had to figure out in the midst of the pandemic in fact we actually had an existing pandemic safety plan that we had hoped we had never would never need to implement which we of course did um we also um i think similar to the comments that patrick and others have made i mean an inclusive culture um that embraces diversity in all forms is absolutely key for ensuring that you remain relevant that your brand remains relevant at Cargill, we actually intentionally lead with inclusion. We call it inclusion and diversity, All right? Um, we, we we won't serve on a board of directors, for example, uh, that doesn't have uh, female representatives or other, um, you know, um, uh, uh, representative that's limiting in any way um, in Minneapolis. Of course, as our headquarters, uh, um, that became the epicenter in May of racial injustice, uh, unfortunately, um, and we really sprung into action of how do we use not only our voice, but also our actions to affect change. Um, so, you know, if you think of diversity being about facts, inclusion is about acts, right? So um, so all of this is, you know, um, I think key to, to making sure that you're, um, you're keeping your brand relevant now and in the future.
0: And finally, Karen, on a personal level, your commitment as the brand leader to ensuring that relevance.
5: Yeah, I think it's always um, making sure that we're always using our values when we have to make these really tough decisions, because they do help steer us through changing times. They allow us to be flexible and adapt uh, while still remaining true to our purpose. And then also, I think a, a key thing for brand and marketing um, is, you know, what is the, the ROI on that, right? Um, this is an investment. Treat brand as an investment, not as a spend. Um, and by doing so, you really are serving your customers and then and, you know, hence, our business, of course, uh, long into the future.
0: Well, thank you for that. And in thanking our speakers, here are my reflections on today's topic and our conversation. In the presence of you, leaders of such enduring brands, I'm compelled to reach back in time. The Romans of antiquity had a God for everything. Neptune, God of the sea, Cupid, God of love, and Apollo, God of the sun, are among the most renowned. As a marketer, my favorite is a lesser known deity, Janus, who held the key between what is, what was, and what is to come. Janus was the God with two faces. One of his faces always looked backward to the past, ever mindful of where he had come from, of those who had gone before. He recognized that in times of turmoil and hardship, he could draw on their strengths. His other face perpetually looked forward to the future, comforted, in his knowledge of the past and the legacy of his ancestors. While the past was always in sight, Janus never fixated on what was. Instead, he looked to the horizon and focused on the possibilities of the future. Like all marketers, Janus had many roles. As the mythical ruler of Latium, he was responsible for the golden age that brought trade, financial services, and agriculture to the region. As the doorkeeper of the heavens, he was the route to all other gods. To the ancient Romans, Janus was the god of gates and doors. As we marketers, prepare to open the door and cross the threshold to 2021, we may lean perspective from the duality of Janus. This pandemic, the economic upheaval, and the crisis surrounding racial inequity has stress tested all of our resilience and provoked us as we've discussed today, to look to our brand purpose, to find a firm foothold from which to elevate. This period is also opening a door to a new future, to cultivate creativity, to forge new possibilities, to forge new relationships and unlock new ambitions. As we heard from the venerable brands here today, enduring relevance demands a steadfast reverence for heritage and an adoptable, inspiring vision for the possibilities of tomorrow. Thank you, Brian, Peter, Patrick, Paul and Karen. We look forward to tracking your progress as you live out the commitments shared today. Thank you to my resilient production team, led by Alison Shiver and Ashley Noonan, assisted by Mick Smith and Kevin Loftus, researcher Ellen Hawken, blog editor Daniel Alonso, designer Gisem Karatis. And you are all in the audience invited back next week on Thursday at 12.30 Eastern, when I will be joined by five more CMOs. On behalf of everyone at Siegel & Gale, I'm Margaret Mulloy. thanking you for joining us. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review and share this podcast. Until next time,
1: this is how CMOs commit.